so many platforms, so little time. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst David Meyer. David, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good. Seems like this is a uh, a, a tech Thursday, a SaaS Thursday. Uh, Want to dive in on companies that are really kind of making the news today, which are Salesforce, uh, Snowflake, and Okta. Let's start with Salesforce. Uh, dividend. We're starting to see dividends pop up. You know, Meta did it. Now Salesforce is doing it. Uh, 40 cents a share. Yeah, that's all right. It's a start. But to me, I'm looking at this as a signal. How should we be thinking about this? I mean, last quarter, we definitely had, you know, Salesforce being more cautious, more, uh, you know, they're not going off and buying things anymore. Is this really, is this company growing up? Definitely. The the dividend, if you, you go back 10 years, there's no way a dividend was anywhere near anyone's radar. And that's, you know, that's a function of Mark Benioff, quite frankly, being Mark Benioff, right? He's a, <laughs> yeah. he's a visionary. He's a technologist. He wanted to uh, put it all, uh, you know, put, put together all these, these pieces and, and create a great company, which he did. But I think that what, where the credit needs to really go is CFO Amy Weaver. In 2021, she became the CFO and she had the unenviable task of trying to rein Mark Benioff in to bring <laughs> more fiscal discipline to the company, right? To say, hey, we, if we're going to do an acquisition, it really has, has to meet these certain requirements for not only from a strategic standpoint, but from a fiscal standpoint. And with Salesforce generating significantly more profit and cash flow than it ever has before. It's able to not only invest for growth and do it in a disciplined way, but now it's it being a bigger, more mature company, it can actually fulfill its promises of returning excess capital to shareholders in different ways. We're seeing it in buybacks, we're seeing it in dividends, and quite frankly, this is exactly the trajectory the company needs to go on. Well, good on her for doing what a couple of co-CEOs were not able to do. I want to talk just a quick sec about that buyback because sales uh, stock-based comp always been an issue with Salesforce. Uh, they're they're going after it. Uh, you know, ten billion dollar buyback program. They uh, they bought back about seven point seven billion last year. You know, it's going in the right direction. Yeah, this is again, this is a, a complete change in the uh, in the way the company operates. Um, look, stock-based compensation, you know, for for a company like Salesforce is going to continue to be an important part of attracting and keeping the talent that they need, right? In order to take the company in the direction they want to go. Again, it's good that they have this excess cash flow where, you know, at a minimum they can offset the dilution and hopefully, you know, the their their making opportunistic purchases with that capital at times when the stock price uh, looks attractive. Yeah, and it's interesting because they they bought a lot of things and now they've sort of been trying to figure out how to knit them all together. And so looking at that, you know, it's not it's not just a maturing company. It's still looking for growth. The big swing that that Benioff spent so much time talking about on the earnings call was the Einstein platform uh, sees it as sort of like this AI ecosystem platform keeps coming up in the conversations that you and I are having. We talked about it with Palo Alto Networks. We're going to talk about it uh, a lot today. So, 
is this a true platform? Because I, I, I worry that people are using the word platform and maybe as a catch-all that's not necessarily a platform. Benioff talked about islands of trap data. I'm not quite sure what that means, but but maybe you can explain. Yes, like, like we did with Palo Alto, let's step back and think about where Salesforce has come, come from real quickly. So again, Salesforce, it's in the ticker, right? CRM, Customer mm-hmm. uh, Resource Management. That was what they were focused on, helping salespeople become more effective by giving them tools to figure out how to manage all of their, you know, all of their contacts to land new customers and, you know, and talk to prospects and et cetera, et cetera. But We've added, you have sales, you know, you have the CRM component, you have marketing component, you have Slack uh, productivity component, you have all these different components, right? And what they want to do is to, again, bring them together and say, hey, if you want your business to run efficiently and effectively on the customer facing side of things, come to us. That is now the platform. It's not just CRM, right? It's how do I do all of that well? And the thing that they want to stitch it together is Einstein, which is the the AI, machine learning, all the analytics that can basically say, hey, you're you're doing all these things from a sales perspective, from a marketing perspective, uh, you know, communications perspective. What can we learn from all that data that we're creating, right? And so becoming even more of a platform is what they are doing and it is the right thing for them to do. So let's talk about these islands of trap data. Okay. So essentially, right. If you're, uh, there are many ways in which, and many places where businesses store data, it doesn't all just go to Salesforce, right? There's so many different areas that where, where, uh, where data can be. And the idea is um, for AI to work efficiently and effectively, we would like all the data to be in one place. So I don't have it. So it makes the computations um, more efficient. And if I can bring in more diverse groups of data, let's say sales data, marketing data, operations data, uh, things like that, maybe I'll get a better insight. So what they are trying to do is a very worthwhile problem to go find a solution for. And they believe that their platform, all the services they have, as well as the data cloud says, Hey, if you want, you can bring all of your data to Salesforce and that will actually make the job easier. Those are all going in the right direction. As long as we assume that, you know, AI is going to continue to be an important part of it. I think that's true. So I like what they're. Uh, I like all the things they're communicating about Einstein, data cloud, the platform, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I like the vision. I think. Uh, I think there is something that so many companies are wrestling with is that they're generating more data than ever. Generative AI is pushing out more data. Everybody's got too much data. You know, a few years ago, there was the whole data is the new oil thing. Well, we don't know what to do with the oil. So uh, what I'm curious about is it's how does it play into the sales? Because you know, you're selling the CRM, you're selling uh, Slack and other things. How does Einstein factor into the future? So an excellent question. Um, early on when they were uh, first rolled out Einstein, you know, again, it was a way to basically get more out of the tools that you were already using. And 
I don't know the specific pricing structures, but maybe they, you know, you you paid a little bit more for your CRM, and you got, uh, you know, you got Einstein on top of it. So maybe you didn't sell Einstein directly early on, right? You just you had to pay to unlock it, let's say. But now, if you take this different approach, right? It's not necessarily the software. Um, underneath, uh, you know, the CRM, the marketing, et cetera, it's not necessarily that's important. But if I can, if I can get customers to essentially pay for the value add as opposed to just access, that's a, that's a different way of selling things, and it's uh, and and a different way of pricing things. So. I don't think they've quite figured out how they're going all their business processes to basically put Einstein front and center. How do you just incentivize the sales force, right? How do I how do I make sure that all my billing uh, uh, software can can handle these things? I think they're working on that. That's the way. That's the way I would fact. I would say, hey, you know, maybe Einstein is not factored into the guidance yet. I think they're still f- trying to figure out how they're going to do it. And if I had to really guess, I would say maybe that might be a little upside surprise either later in fiscal 25 or or into fiscal 26. Well, let's move on to sort of the big wow moment after market closed yesterday, which is that Frank Slootman, CEO of Snowflake, he's he's retiring. Now, he's not leaving the company. He's going he's going to stay on as the board chair. But this really shocked people. I mean, you've got Sridhar Ramaswamy, uh, you know, he was the senior president of AI. He's been with the company a couple of years, came in through an acquisition. You know, this feels like a signal that AI is running the show, but the the market got pretty riled up by this one. <laughs> I have a little bit of a different thought here. Um, oh, good. It, it, it is no, there is no question, again, we talked about it with Salesforce, there's no question that AI is front and center. Um, and that a lot of what Snowflake is trying to do is basically be an enabler of of AI for businesses all over the world. But I don't think Sridhar became president just because of his uh, what he's done in the AI segment. We have to remember he actually came from Google, where he spent many years in both com- commercial leadership roles as well as engineering leadership roles. So. Snowflake is a complicated technical <laughs> company. And not only do you need someone who understands the changing commercial landscape, but you also need someone who understands the changing technological landscape. And I believe that's the big reason why Sridhar was promoted. He has all the chops. And it's going to be a big challenge uh, you know, going forward. This, this stuff's going to only get more and more complicated. So, having somebody with his background, as well as his uh, ability to, uh, given he was a, an entrepreneur, to, to have a vision as well, I, I, think that, I think those are the qualities they were looking for in a, uh, in a CEO to take, uh, to take Snowflake to the next level, so to speak. Well, one of the things I've heard people talk about is that you know Slootman more of a, a more of a sales guy, 
Ramaswamy more of a of a of a technologist, as you put it, and also, but this is a company that is seems to be in an interesting spot. So growth growth is still strong, but slowing a little bit. They, they talked about changing the forecast process to be more receptive to current trends. That that seems like uh, some sort of double speak for like things aren't going to get better. Uh, what's happening with this? Yeah, that that's a whole lot of word salad right there. <laughs> yeah. um, here's my interpretation, um, and we're seeing this uh, across a number of uh, larger SaaS-oriented companies. Uh, this idea that customers are still optimizing their spending, and what that's meaning is, we know the things that we want to do from a technological standpoint are important, and we are making we are we customers are willing to make these investments. But how do we ensure that we uh, get the right return on the investment, and how do we make sure that our spending levels don't get out of control? So, what I think that word salad is trying to say is they don't have enough evidence to say customer buying behavior has flipped back to a times when they were more willing to spend. And as a result, if we're not confident that that's happening, you can't really uh, put that in your guidance and to to show that uh you know there's there's uh, the demand levels are changing the buying habits are changing and as a result we're going to you know resume faster growth I, I, that's what i think that means the guidance is is uh, growth is expected to slow on a quarterly basis for snowflake um across calendar year 20 uh, 2024 and i think that th uh, that statement basically uh, was necessary to as a justification about why that's going to happen. Well, I think we're hearing a different type of reasoning for the slowdown than we were a couple quarters ago because we were hearing before the sales like cycle is slow. This is what we're experiencing now. I feel like with Snowflake and and with Okta too. I'm hearing more about we're going to the customer base isn't going to grow dramatically, but we're going to make more products. We're going to get more out of, of out of each customer. Um, on the Okta call, they talked about this the hunter and farmer model. So hunter goes out, gets new clients. Farmer, uh, you know, basically gets more out of the land. So is this is this a theme we're seeing? Is this a next trend of what we're possibly going to see from some of the SaaS companies? So um, it's very interesting from an Okta standpoint that that's what they brought out in their call because this model has actually already be, is already being used by lots and lots of different SaaS companies. And yes. the, the the reason is um, just like just as you said, you know, there's once you get through that big push of adoption and you become a mainstream product, you know, like customers are going to come in. Yes, we want it. We want it. We want it. But investing in sales and marketing that gets your customers to buy more is potentially is potentially a way to get more return on those dollars. And so good companies have figured out how to how to do both. So it's good that you know both of these companies have recognized it and you know uh, Octa brought it to the you know the conference call with some fanfare, but as a SaaS company, you you needed to be doing this a couple of years ago. Let's put it that let's put it that way. This should have been your model from day one. And it seems like the the platformatization is part of a way to kind of bundle bundle that up as a sales tool, but also as a as a framework. 
Oh, a hundred, hundred percent. Right. Cause if you can figure out, let's say a customer's has a need for one product, you can get them in the door that way. But once you learn more about that customer, once you develop a relationship with them, once you figure out more about what their needs are, that's the perfect opportunity to say, Hey, by the way, we also have product X and product Y and product Z, and we can bundle them together and you can get them on our platform. And you, it's still, it's seamless in terms of, since we're a SaaS company, you know, you can just, we can flip a switch and you can get access. So yeah, that's spot on. Well, thank you for breaking it down with me today, David. You're very welcome, Deidre. Thank you. a lot of stocks on the show, but it's just a peek at the Motley Fool's investing universe. This year, we're rolling out a new offering. It's called Epic Bundle. The service includes seven stock recommendations every month, model portfolios, and stock rankings, all based on your investor type. We're offering Epic Bundle to Motley Fool Money listeners at a reduced rate as a thanks for listening to the show. So for more information, head to fool.com epic. We'll also include a link in the show notes for you. We've got another perspective from an author who broke away from the world of high finance. I caught up with Gary Stevenson, author of The Trading Game, about his time at Citibank and the disconnect between traders and the real economic world. I want to get a little bit into your story because there are these moments in the story where, where you know, you're trading and there's that, that, that tension. There's this, you had a few, like, I'd call them like stomach flip over moments. One for me is when you realize the Swiss Nest no Bank's offering negative 4.5% interest on three-month swaps. There's this kind of moment where I think people who have less tolerance for risk might have pulled out their money. You went the opposite way. And it reminds me of this. Uh, there's a, a saying from The Economist, uh, Keynes, about you know the market can stay irrational longer than you can say stay solvent. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Yes, it's a very big learning experience. So that was my second full year trading. So I started working as a short-term rates trader in 2008, which is obviously the year of the Lima crisis. Mm -hmm. It became enormously profitable business because we were making short-term loans of dollars. Everybody needed dollars. Basically, we could, we could borrow them from the central bank at zero and lend them out at 2%. It was like a lot of easy money, basically. When you do it in the FX swap, you have to lend one currency and borrow another currency. So at the time, I was a Swiss franc trader. I was lending dollars and borrowing Swiss francs. And it was kind of an easy ride, to be honest. Everybody was making a lot of money. I made a lot of money in my first year when I was extremely young, didn't know what I was doing. And I was just kind of copying everybody, really, lending dollars, borrowing what in my case was Swiss francs. Every trader has their own currency. And then suddenly one day out of nowhere, I sort of refreshed my PL and it shows it's my PL is profit and loss for those who don't know. Right. And it shows down half a million dollars. And I'm sort of thinking, you know, what's going on here? I'm trying to look for the reason. I asked one of the brokers and the broker says, oh, Swiss National Bank's put something up on their website. And I look on the website and the Swiss National Bank is offering this unbelievably cheap foreign exchange swap where they essentially lend out Swiss francs for negative four and a half percent, which is, I don't need to tell you, an extremely negative rate. Yeah. Because, you know, the Swiss franc position was kind of an incidental part of my dollar position. Now, I, was, I had an FX swap. I was lending dollars. You have to borrow... Swiss francs against it. That's the way the FX swap worked. And suddenly I was just getting absolutely hammered and I lost something like a million dollars in that, that first day, basically. So, you know, I, I described it to you before when you trade interest rates, it's realizable, right? You do the trade now, you wait a year and, and you see, was I right or not? And um, immediately, instinctively, and we discuss in the book whether this is real or whether it was an emotional reaction, 
I thought minus 4.5% is an impossibly low interest rate. You, you simply cannot keep rates at minus 4.5%. You know, if, if, you, if you charge the banking system minus 4.5%, they'll start trying to charge that to their customers and customers will take their money out of the bank because you can get 0% with your money under your pillow, you know. And I just thought it's wrong, you know. It's never going to stay at minus 4.5%. So instead of, you know, I lost, you know, in the first couple of days, I lost a couple of million dollars. And instead of stepping out, I sort of stepped in and backed it up. You know, it turns out I was right. You know, in, in the long run, those interest rates were not sustainable and they came all the way back relatively quickly. But because I was like stepping into the position quite aggressively despite losing money, I managed to lose $8 million PL within a week, which is an enormous amount for at the time. That was early 2011, so not early 2010. So I would have been 23 still. It was an enormous oh. amount of money for me to take. And I eventually ended up getting stopped up by my management. I went from up $4 million for the year to down $4 million for the year. And then obviously I had to watch the trade come all the way back. So this is just, you know, anyone who has been trading for a long time will, will know this. You know, it's it's not enough to just be right. You need to be able to to survive. You, you need yeah. to be there by the time you're actually right. So it's it's about, you know, sometimes being right is the easier part of the trade. Sometimes the tricky part is knowing how much to do, especially if you're basically certain you're right. Because if you're certain you're right, you want to do everything. But if you do everything, then even if it goes against you for, you know, a month or maybe even a week, if it's a big move, you'll get stopped out. It doesn't matter whether you're right. So I think I describe it in the book as basically two rules for life. Be right in the end. Be alive at the end. Yeah, sizing is, is super important. And um, I tried to stand up to the Swiss National Bank. And in that one instance... You know, it's it, one of the things I found interesting in the book it, that, uh, you know, I feel like sometimes people who come in from the outside, like you did, they're often able to see beyond the status quo. And one of the things in the book, it's kind of this juxtaposition of institutional and university knowledge and economic theory versus like the ability to risk, go the opposite way, follow your gut, which it seems like it's an advantage when the economy doesn't perform the way that everybody expects it will. Uh, like, so during the time period when you just, you just keep betting on interest rates staying suppressed. So you were very young. Uh, was your was your youth, your your outsider status kind of an advantage at that point? It was in the end. Yeah, it definitely was in the end. Because I think one of the beautiful things about trading is there's not many spaces in this world that reward you for turning around to all of the people around you and saying, you guys, you're all wrong. Yeah. And, you know, you know, our society, you know, human societies are not generally built to reward those people. If you turn around and tell everybody around you, you're all wrong then, you know, you'll, you'll become quite unpopular very quickly. And I think this causes problems of intellectual groupthink, you know, and it causes problems in causes problems in politics, it causes problems in academia, it causes problems in economics, because, because we as humans don't like it when we're called wrong, and we tend to punish people who say we're all wrong, you, we can end up in situations like where we are now, where the economy just gets worse year after year after year, and the, econom the economists are wrong year after year after year, and nobody can, nobody can basically call them out. You know, I tried to be in academia and it's basically impossible to challenge these people. Whereas in trading, if everyone around you is wrong and you notice it, you are going to make an absolute fortune. It's, it's music to my ears as a trader when everybody around me says, no, Gary, you're wrong because I know if everybody thinks I'm wrong, I'm going to make an absolute fortune. And I think this is where, you know, we talk about class a lot in the book, right? And here in London, there's very much a... Um, there's a stereotype of the cockney, wide boy, market boy trader, um, you know, this kind of artful dodger type character. Because back in the 80s and 90s, we, you know, the, 
the financial area is in the east of London, which is where these people used to live. And in the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of these people going into trading. You know, in the early 2000s, things massively changed. And, and by now, basically, unless you're from a very rich family, went to an elite schools, you're almost, it's almost impossible to get in there. Once you're in there, there is actually like a massive sameness about these people. You know, they all, they might not come from the same country. It's very international, but they all come from rich families, elite schools, elite universities, elite jobs. And they basically don't know anyone who is poor. And this is, you know, these guys' job is economic analysis, right? How much can you realistically know about the economy if you don't know a single person in an average financial situation? Mm. This is the situation both in the, in the universities, you know, and in most of politics and in the trading floor, you know. So the big thing for me, so, you know, after 2008, markets predicted that interest rates would go up in 2009 and they didn't. And then 2010, and they didn't. And then 11 and then 12 and then 13 and then 14. So every year, these guys predicted essentially an economic recovery. And, you know, after sort of two and a half years of this, you start thinking, these guys are just clueless. They're just wrong, right? But the biggest, the big advantage I had is I could go out and ask people, right? And, and I, you know, I studied economics at the London School of Economics. So, you know, I, I know the theory. The theory is basically low interest rates are supposed to get you spending. But, you know, go out, if, you know, at the time when rates are very low, you go out and ask people, why don't you spend? Everyone will say exactly the same thing, you know. We don't have any money. Don't have any money, you know. And then you sit there pondering this idea, like we know, like billions, hundreds of billions are being poured in, yet nobody's got any money, you know. And I was sort of bouncing this around in my head, and I was trying to work out, you know, where's this money going? And then you know, one day you look around and you realise everyone in this room is a multi-millionaire, <laughs> and you think, okay, <laughs> this is where the money's going, and you know, it's it's not going to get to ordinary people. And then I think that was sort of the penny drop moment for me, and I realised. What we have is a fundamental crisis of inequality, and you know, it's nobody's seriously talking about fixing that. You know, everybody wants growth and productivity. The problem is inequality. Nobody's fixing that. So I sort of realised this is not this is not a recession. This is not one week year. This is not two week years. This is a downhill slope all the way to hell. You know, and I started betting on that. And by the end of the year, I was Citibank's most profitable trader in the world. So say what you will about that. Well, that's that's sort of the turning point in the book is you're trading all the time. You're you're betting on this this situation. You, as you said, one of the top traders in the world. These are just massive numbers shifting back and forth on your profit and loss sheet. At that point, were you still aware of like the numbers, the money behind it, or was it did it just become pure numbers for you? You know, this is the thing about games, you know, we've, we've spoken about the positive side of games and, and I love games. You know, I, I still love games now. Game theory was my big subject at university and I still play games when I have a little bit of time and I want to zone out. Games are very engrossing, right? And they can suck you in and they can they can become addicting. And, you know, the big game that we, we play, all of us in this world, is, is the game of money, you know, the game of money. We're all trying to make money. We're all trying to make money. Listen, you know, I've got a YouTube channel. And I put videos out every week saying, listen, if we don't deal with this growing inequality, our society will collapse and your kids will be heartbreakingly poor. And the number one most common message I get sent on that channel is, Gary, how do I make money? Mm. So th this, this, is the, this is the dark side of games, right? The dark side of games. You know, I, um, I put as the, like, the epigraph, the quote at the beginning of the book, a quote from my friend's granddad. He used to sort of 
wander around his house when we were kids and he used to say to us, he was Indian and he only didn't speak much English. And he used to just say, life is life, game is a game. And we never really understood what he meant. But I think I've come to understand, I think what it means is if you focus too much on the game, then you can easily forget about what's important. And, you know, the book, I think, has that comment about society, but it absolutely definitely has that comment about me. And you've read the book. It, there is, without a doubt, I became so engrossed with this game and so obsessed with this game. And, you know, I was very good at the game, but it was it, it absolutely consumed me and it overwhelmed me and it just became everything that, that I did. So, you know, games are great, but if you, if you lean too much into them, there's obviously a dark side of it as well. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.